Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're going to look at the life of Paul, St. Paul, but actually that wasn't his name originally, was it, Mike? Uh, not at all. He was known as Saul, and that's how we first meet him in the book of Acts. Um, in a previous episode, we looked at the martyrdom of Stephen, and at the very end of that story, we noted how some of the witnesses to Stephen's martyrdom by the Jewish religious leaders was this guy called Saul, who actually, he was standing there holding the cloaks of those who did the stoning. So that's the first place that we come across him. So he was an observer of Stephen's death. How else would he, was he involved with the persecution? Well, Stephen's death clearly acted as a sort of trigger for those who were vehemently opposed to the Christian faith. And it certainly was a trigger for Saul. So as we move from Stephen's martyrdom in chapter 7, we discover in chapter 8 that a great wave of persecution uh, sweeps over Jerusalem and Judea. But by the time we get to chapter 9, we, we read these words that meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So this tells us something about how passionately opposed Paul was, Saul as he still is, to opposed to uh, the Christians. So he went to the high priest and requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So here is this, he's a young man at this stage. We're, we're not quite sure how old, late teens, early 20s, but who is so passionately opposed to the Christians that he now goes to the Jewish authorities asking for authorization to root out the Christians. Now, let's note two things. He has to go and ask for letters of authorization. In other words, he may be passionate, but he doesn't carry much weight. Mm -hmm. This is not something he can go and do on his own. So he's a young firebrand, um, but he doesn't have the weight to do this. He needs letters authority behind him. And he wants to head to Damascus. Now, why Damascus? It's because Damascus lay at a major crossroads of international trading routes. And Paul knew that if Christianity reached Damascus, then there would be no stopping it. It could spread everywhere, east, west, north, south from that point. So that's why he focuses in on this. And he is adamant that he is going to stop these Christians and put an end to this Christian stupidity message. But the question is why? why? Why is he so motivated? What's his background? The sad thing is he felt he was doing it all for God. We discover in Acts and in some of his letters a little bit about the background of Saul. Um, he'd come from uh, Tarsus, 
which was in Cilicia in, in modern Turkey. Uh, Cilicia, by the way, was well known for its production of goats and the goat hair that was of a really good quality from which they make tents in particular. And so that becomes, we know, Paul's profession. He becomes a tent maker because that's what they did mm -hmm. in that area. But not only had his father brought him up, presumably in that family business, uh, he'd also been brought up as a young Pharisee. Now, we've talked about Pharisees in a previous episode, but remember, a Pharisee was not being a job. Being a Pharisee was a lifestyle, and it was this group of people who were trying to live in scrupulous obedience to both the Jewish written law and all the oral traditions that had been added to it as attempts to try and explain it and apply it to life over the generations. And, and while it's common today perhaps to see Pharisees as just hypocrites who were concerned only with externals, they never saw obedience to the law as an end in itself. Rather, this was about preparing for the coming of Messiah. So they were passionate about obeying the law, why so Messiah could come. Of course, they missed the fact that he had come. And he had the very, very best of uh, Jewish education. It seems that while he was a young teenager, um, his father had sent him to Jerusalem to train under one of the leading rabbis of the day in, in Acts 22, verse 3, where Paul is giving his testimony again. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs, and I became very zealous to honor God. Now, uh, Gamaliel was one of the most famous Jewish teachers of his time, and his grandfather was Hillel. There were two main parties, Hillel and Shammai. Shammai was the one who stuck to the letter of the law. Hillel was a little bit more moderate, and uh, Gamaliel came from that side. So Paul was not legalistic, as legalistic as he could have been, um, but it's under Gamaliel that he is trained in the law and becomes passionate. So why is he so opposed to these Christians? Because these Christians, with their message of Jesus, are in danger of preventing Messiah coming and preventing the kingdom of God from coming. You mentioned Damascus. He's on the road to Damascus, and that sort of rings a bell. That's where all heaven lets loose. So in Acts chapter 9, he's approaching Damascus on this mission, armed with his letters of authority, when we read that a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Now, even before we read any further, just think of the impact of that. Paul thinks he is doing God's will in persecuting Jesus and his followers. Suddenly, he has a revelation from heaven. 
this blinding light can be nothing else. And a voice saying, why persecute me? Who's the me? I am Jesus. Suddenly, he's confronted with two things that don't meet. He believes he is passionately doing God's will, but suddenly has encountered this Jesus whom he thought was dead and is now alive and is speaking to him, asking why he is persecuting him. So Jesus tells him to get up, go into the city and tells him, you'll be told what to do. And all the guys around Saul are speechless because they could hear the, the voice, Acts tells us, but they, they couldn't see what was happening. So Paul has to make his way blind into the city of Damascus and he's left there for three days and he doesn't eat or drink. He's fasting and, and praying. Now, meanwhile, there's a Christian in Damascus called Ananias, and he's, you know, having a nice time and getting on with his quiet time and living a good Christian life when suddenly uh, the Lord speaks to him and says, Ananias, and he says, yes, Lord, like you do. And the Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, <laughs> exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he's authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. So Ananias is understandably a little hesitant. Yes to go and talk to this guy. I don't know about you, but I think I might have been too. And, you know, are you really sure that's what you're saying, Lord? But he doesn't realize he's had this Damascus Road experience. Absolutely. And when God sends us anywhere, we never know what God has been doing in people's lives. You know, we might think, I'm going into this, but we don't know what God has been doing. And the this is not a this, it's, it's a that. So the Lord, he doesn't rebuke him. He encourages him. I think he understands his fear and says, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So two key things stand out here. First, this is going to be God's chosen man to take the message to the Gentile world, outside the realms of Judaism, to Gentiles, to rulers. And of course, that's exactly what he will do. And I'll show him how much he must suffer. He was the man who intended to cause suffering to others. He would suffer much himself for Jesus' sake. He will list it in some of his letters of how he was flogged almost to death, stoned, how he had to face shipwrecks, not just once, but several times. Many, many things that he would have to face, ultimately martyrdom and so Ananias, bless him, goes and finds Saul and, and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me uh, so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as he lays hands on him, instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. And afterwards he ate food and regained his strength. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is indeed the Son of God. So here is the Damascus Road 
conversion, that incredible, powerful encounter with Jesus. Though even though we think it was instant, it, even this lasts a few days, doesn't it? He encounters Jesus, is knocked off his horse, is blinded by the light, is left for three days to pray and seek God. And only when Ananias comes and lays hands on him and prays for him, do the scales fall away from his eyes. And at last he sees who this Jesus really is, whom he has been persecuting. And from now on, he will go around not opposing Jesus, but declaring that Jesus is indeed the son of God, the very opposite of what he had always thought. So a completely different person. And does that explain why his name changed? His name changes on his mission journeys. Well, I say his name changes. Some scholars think it may not have changed. Very common in this period of history for people to have at least two names. And sometimes those names were Hebrew, and particularly if you moved in the Gentile world and Paul as a tent maker would have been a trader. So it was not uncommon to have a Hebrew name because of his Hebrew tradition um, and a Greek or Roman name as well. So he may well have always had these. He may well have been Saul Paul and just started to use the Paul name and drop the Saul as he begins his ministry. Others think perhaps he just chose to change his name. I think it's more likely it was his second name and he simply drops the other and uses the one that becomes more culturally accessible for the Gentile world where God has now called him to go. Can you summarise the extent to which this turnaround in his life changed everything? It certainly changed everything for Paul, first and foremost. He now no longer lives as someone who is caught up in the trap that thinking obedience to God's law can earn us brownie points, can get us right. He suddenly realizes that it is relationship with Jesus, not religion, that saves us. And so many of his letters will focus on the importance of us being saved by faith, not by works. Romans and Galatians in particular are strong on both those themes. This was an enormous transformation for Paul, a guy who had lived as a Pharisee uh, all those years, who'd been brought up, trained under one of the best leaders, in fact, in, in Philippians, looking back on his life. He, he says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Actually, that's a really polite translation because the word in the original Greek is the word for dung, right? cow dung. I consider them now as just mere dung because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ my Lord. So it's a turning point for Paul personally because of 
not the God he believes in, it's still the same God that he believes in, but how he now sees he can both access that God and serve that God is not by box ticking, by obeying the letter of the law, by works, by trying hard, but by simply living a life of faith and trust in Jesus and following him and obeying him. So that's the first big impact of this turnaround. But of course, because of that, the second big impact and turnaround is for the whole church. Because Paul will eventually end up in Antioch. We discover that after his conversion, he spends a little time in in the Damascus area. And at one point, he has to escape in a basket because people are out to kill him. And uh, he ends up with Barnabas in Antioch, Antioch that will become this key center of Christian mission. And he gets engaged in work there. And because Antioch has an outward looking vision, it responds to God when it calls them to release Saul and Barnabas to the work of mission and Paul's great missionary journeys flow out. So two things that come out of this Damascus Road experience. One is a profound change for Paul that he starts to see we're put right with God, not by what we do, but by who we believe in and who we follow. And therefore, secondly, a profound change for the church as this man becomes just a powerhouse of mission in going to take this message. Yeah, first to the Jews, because he always started in the local synagogues till he was kicked out, but then incredibly effectively among the Gentiles across the known Roman Empire. I was going to say, clearly he became driven in a completely new way, but the impact of him being driven in such a way was clearly enormous. As you sort of reflect on that, how remarkable is it that that one one man should have such an impact? Well, it is incredible, isn't it? And... You know, the truth is, if if we had to say which one man in the New Testament is responsible more than any other for the explosion of Christianity, there's no doubt it has to be Paul. But I just want to pick up the word you said there about him being impelled, I think. Was driven, the driven. Word, driven. About him being driven. And you're right, because this drivenness now is a completely new drivenness. Before, it was the drivenness of I have to. And now it's the drivenness of I want to. I love doing this. It's the drivenness of the spirit within him. Even when he knew that he was about to be arrested and would end up being taken to Rome and people want to stop him, he just says, no, compelled by the spirit, I have to go. And he now becomes a man of the spirit who responds to the spirit rather than being driven by what I call ortage and mustery, what I ought to do, what I must do. And the curse of the Christian life is ortage and mustery, and we need to get rid of it and to become men and women who are instead led by the spirit, who do things not because We feel we have to, but because something has happened in our hearts, there's a change in our hearts, and we now want to. And so from that man who was driven by a hatred 
of the Christians because he felt they were opposing the coming of the kingdom of God. He's now led by the Spirit to furthering that message of the Christians, knowing that as he does so, he most surely is extending that message of the kingdom of God. And where, briefly, was he led to? Well, he is based in Antioch, and that becomes the base for three um, missionary journeys over the coming years. I call them missionary journeys because that's what we tend to call them these days. I'm sure they weren't aware that they were missionaries in those days. Three mission journeys, three apostolic uh, journeys. Uh, The first of these happens between 46 to 48 AD. And interestingly, because he's accompanied by Barnabas, that will include going to Barnabas's home country of Cyprus. And they cross across the whole of the island to Paphos, and there he's able to present the gospel to the Roman proconsul, a man called Sergius Paulus, who believes in the Lord. What a powerful guy this now could be for the gospel. And then from Cyprus, uh, they head north and they cross by boat into uh, Persia Minor and visit some places in in, uh, Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, Uh, and then eventually revisit those places on the way back and head back to Jerusalem. Then there's a slight hiccup because the effectiveness of Paul's ministry all over the place is causing some of the Jewish Christians um, to really get concerned because they feel, hang on, hang on, this is okay, all these Gentiles becoming Christians. But if they're going to become Christians, surely they should also become Jews. After all, we are God's people. So surely, in particular, the men should be circumcised and everyone must obey the Lord. Now, this cut across everything that Paul had come to see on that Damascus road and out of it. And so uh, after that mission, in AD 50, there's a meeting of all the apostles and leading figures in Jerusalem. We often call it uh, the Jerusalem Council today, where the apostles come to an agreement that you do not have to become a Jew to become a Christian, that you do not have to keep all those rules Mm. that the Jews did. They ask them for a couple of things, to avoid sexual immorality and food that's been offered to idols and and, and non-kosher food. Why? Because that would stop them having fellowship with Jewish Christians. Mm -hmm. But they make very clear that the law, the Old Testament law, is now no longer incumbent on Gentile Christians. Well, that opens the way then for Paul to be able to go on his next journey. So around 50 to 52 AD, he does a second missionary journey where he covers some of the same ground, but gets that incredible vision of the man from Macedonia over in Greece, Mm. Europe as we would call it, calling him to take the gospel over to them. Paul had it's such frustration. It, it says in Acts 16 that we tried to enter Bithynia and we tried to enter Mysia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow us. What that means, I don't know. Was it a spiritual block or some practical block? Was there a landslide and the road was closed? But anyway, they are able to cross over into Europe and it's there that he'll meet a, a key character, Timothy, whom he'll take on and train as a young 
apprentice, and uh, they will work through a whole number of places there in those provinces, Neapolis, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Then they'll head to Athens and Corinth, and they actually stay in Corinth, a, a key city, for 18 months. Then they cross back to Ephesus over in Asia Minor in Turkey and on to Caesarea, Jerusalem, back to Antioch. And then there's the third journey. There's just no stopping. No, indeed. This guy is there. <laughs> they spent some time in Antioch before embarking on the third journey, and then they travel north and west again. They revisit some of the churches in Galatia and Phrygia where he's been before, and he at last arrives in Ephesus, finds a bunch of Christians there who've not received the Holy Spirit. So pray for them. Uh, there's quite a lot happens in Ephesus, I commend our listeners to read that story and find some of the exciting things that, that happened there in, uh, in Acts and in Ephesus. There's a great riot um, that occurs because their preaching suddenly starts to affect economics and God forbid that religion <laughs> should affect politics or economics. And as Paul is preaching about Jesus, people are getting saved and they're turning away from their idols. In particular, they're turning away from their idols of Artemis. Now, Ephesus was one of the leading shrines to the goddess Artemis. Hmm. And, of course, the, the local silver merchants are worried that if people turn to Jesus, they'll not want their shrines of Artemis. And so they cause this great riot, accusing uh, Paul of, of undermining not just their religion but their reputation and their economy, uh, and so there's this great riot and this great story. And then they go on, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, uh, Troas, uh, and so they continue. There, there's an interesting story in the third missionary journey in Troas. Clearly Paul was uh, a, a preacher of long sermons <laughs> because we, we get the story in Troas where we're told that uh, – Paul gathers the church there and uh, they broke bread together as they used to do each time they met. And then Paul started preaching until late at night, uh, until early the next morning. And there was this guy called Eutychus who was sitting in the window and the windows were open in those days. And as Paul's going on, he nods off, falls asleep, falls from the window. Um, and Paul has to go out, finds the guy dead, prays for him, uh, raises him to life. And here's the funny bit, then goes back inside and carries on his preaching. <laughs> and then he goes on to Miletus and he calls for the elders of Ephesus to come and meet them because he's not going to see them again and heads for Jerusalem. So three very exciting missionary journeys, but that will end up with Paul arriving back in Jerusalem. And the minute he does, the Jews there stir up antagonism. There's threats of riots again. Paul is arrested for his own protection. And to cut a long story short, he ends up having to be transferred to Caesarea Maritima to where the governor Felix is. He gets the opportunity to preach about Jesus to him. But this thing just drags on for two years. And eventually Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, he apparently was a Roman citizen. Well, Looked like his father had either earned, been rewarded with, or bought Roman citizenship that passed on to Paul. 
And any Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Caesar. And Paul just thinks, I want to cut through this. But there was also something else going on. Paul had had a prophetic word that he would appear in Rome and speak before the emperor. And for him, this was his opportunity to do it. And so we get the end of Acts, him taking the journey to Rome, you know, just the odd shipwreck on Malta, (laughs) off the coast of Malta as they get there. And then Acts ending up open-endedly with Paul under house arrest, not in prison here at this stage, but under house arrest, openly preaching about the kingdom of God. Right to the end. Right to the end, although the end goes on a little bit further than the book of Acts tells us because we can work out from some of his later letters that there was a slightly sort of PS uh, end to it. It seems that Paul was released. In all probability, his accusers from Jerusalem couldn't be bothered to even turn up. So after the two years, scholars think he was released. We think he probably fulfilled the ambition of traveling to Spain that he'd always longed to do and that he refers to in several of his letters. But he then ends up at some point being rearrested for his preaching. He now has a second term of imprisonment, but this time in the Maritima prison in Rome, in the deepest uh, dungeon. And it's from there that he writes to Timothy, where it's clear that that death is on, now on the doorstep. And and. Tradition has it that that Paul ended up dying as a martyr, as a Roman citizen. He would have been beheaded rather than crucified under the hands of the very emperor that he had appealed to, the mad emperor Nero. I don't know if I would have wanted to appeal to Nero, but Paul was so impelled, so led by the Holy Spirit that he knew God wanted him at the very centre of power in Rome itself to be able to testify to Jesus there. So what a gripping story this is from the man who vehemently opposed Christianity to the man who took it to the farthest edges of the empire of those days. It is a remarkable story, a remarkable life. Is there a danger that we can think, I can't reach Paul's standards? I think there is. And let's face it, he was a particularly gifted guy. But what I love about Paul in the midst of all this mission and apostolic strategy is he is a pastor at heart. Read his letters and you cannot fail to see the pastor's heart, the tenderness with which he inquires after Timothy's help, his his desire to sort out problems when they arose in church. And that is something we can emulate. We might not all be called to travel the world to take the message of Jesus. But I think what we can take from Paul is first to understand that all the religion in the world can't save us. Only faith in Jesus can. Second, to not keeping a list of rules and living by ortage and mustery, but to being led by the Holy Spirit. And and third, to being a man like Paul was who cared about people. Actually, why did he do all these missionary journeys because he cared that without Christ, people were lost eternally. And he wanted to see them saved. And having been saved and added to the church, he wanted to see them become fruitful, functioning members of the body of Christ. And in those things, Paul is very attainable. 
and is certainly a model that all of us can follow. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.